0: Just for those of you who haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we want to get a running running start into chapter 4 by quickly overviewing the events of chapter 3. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through a book of the Bible. And sometimes the drawback to that, if there is any, is that if you miss a week, you're kind of missing what maybe the next week is building off of. Peter and John have gone into the temple, the ninth hour of prayer, They've gone through the gate called Beautiful, and as they were making their way through, they heard a familiar character, a lame man, a man who had been lame from birth. For 40 years, this man had sat at the gate called Beautiful, begging for alms, for charity. It's the only way that he survived. His condition condemned him as a sinner. He was not allowed to progress any further into the temple itself. He was in a rough spot, and Peter and John hear this man, and the stirring of the Spirit takes place within the heart of Peter. He turns, his radar gets set off, he goes right to the man. And he says, silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And an incredible miracle takes place. This setting is public, The scene, it's packed with individuals. No doubt, from the miracle itself taking place, there was quite a commotion. But this commotion began to spread throughout the temple precincts to the point that before Peter and John really knew what was happening, they had quite an audience wanting an explanation. And so Peter, in the latter half of chapter 3, he teaches an incredible sermon. His second sermon, he's getting better. He's practicing. Practice makes perfect. And here he is, and he preaches the gospel. He deflects the attention that was naturally coming to them. He opens by saying, really? To think that it's of our godliness or by our power or by our authority that we could make this man walk? No, it's in the name of Jesus. It's an awesome scene, a powerful scene. And we're told in chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, that as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. As they spoke, or literally as Peter and John were speaking, As they're continuing to explain the things that we already got a glimpse of in chapter 3, as they're talking to the people and preaching and communicating the great truth of Jesus Christ, a fairly large group of men were told quickly and suddenly came upon them. Now, of the group, Luke tells us that there were the priests. And the priests were those who were in charge of the care of the temple, the procedures of the temple. You also have listed here the captain of the guard. The captain of the guard, he was in charge of keeping the peace there at the Temple Mount, the temple precincts. More than likely, the the captain also came with backup, and so he's probably bringing a crew with him as well. And we're told that in this group were the Sadducees. At this time, the Sadducees were the principal ruling party in Israel. This group of men were powerful, they were political, they were wealthy. They had strong alliances with Rome. Unlike the Pharisees, who were equally political but were more fundamental, the Sadducees were considered to be the liberal wing of Judaism. Their interpretation of Scripture was loose. Today, we might call it progressive. Not to mention, they were notoriously materialistic and, in many ways, hedonistic in the way that they approached life. These guys spoke one thing, but lived a different way. The Sadducees were what we would call rationalists, especially when it came to religion. According to Josephus, the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural, which is interesting if you're going through Scripture because you're not believing in the supernatural. You're finding all kinds of different excuses to rationalize varying parts of Scripture. These men rejected angels. They dismissed spirits. They didn't like the miraculous, and therefore, the notion of the resurrection was an affront to them, which might explain for us why we're told that this group comes in, but they're greatly disturbed. Literally, they're troubled, displeased. We might say that they were offended. Not only did they find Peter and John teaching the people the resurrection of the dead, which was something they rejected theologically, but they were also preaching in whom? The name of Jesus. Now don't forget, just two months earlier, the same group of men, the religious leaders, had attempted to silence Jesus by having him crucified because he was proving to be a threat to their power, their authority, following the rumors of Jesus' resurrection. The same group of wealthy, politically connected men did what? They went to great lengths to bury a story of the resurrection, to tamp down the rumors that were circulating around the city. And how did they do it? Well, we're told in Matthew that they paid off the Roman guards. Now, the message that they heard Peter and John preaching, they're in the temple. Two months later, well, it greatly disturbed them. Because A, it contradicted their theology, and B, it threatened to undo a narrative. (laughs) A narrative they had spent really good money to propagate. Now, before we move forward, I want to make an observation from the text. Peter and John are doing what? They're preaching the word. Not their opinions, Not the local politics of the day. They're preaching God's word. Jesus crucified and resurrected. It's powerful. But we see here that when God's word is preached, it will offend those who resist it. This is not the first time we've made this point, but we'll see it over and over and over again. You know, I believe that the most compelling signifier... That differentiates between the rejection of truth versus the resisting of truth is when a person finds themselves offended by what's being said. Now, I'm not necessarily referring to uh, being offended because somebody said something stupid and ridiculous. Like people will say falsehoods for the, the sake of trying to get a rise to get a stir. I'm offended by what you're saying because it's not even true. Like falsehoods can offend. I'm talking about when the truth offends. See, when the truth offends, there is a difference between rejecting truth and resisting truth, and I think offense is the indicator between the two. You see, to reject a truth is to cast it aside because you disagree with the conclusion. But when a person is offended by a truth, it's often a clear indicator that person is resisting some internal effect that that truth created that they didn't like. Let me give you an example. Kind of go with me here. One of my favorite comedians, Louis C.K., he has a bit within his stand-up. He makes this statement. He says, I don't stop eating when I'm full. The meal isn't over when I'm full. It's over when I hate myself. Now, if you eat healthy, you laugh at that statement because the truth that's buried deep within the statement itself doesn't exactly apply to you. Like, you can find the hilarity in it because you either can reject it or it doesn't apply, so you're cool with it. However, if you find yourself offended by his statement, it's probably an indicator that you're a fat slob who overindulges when it comes to eating their food think about it this way. Isn't it typically true that skinny people aren't offended by fat jokes? (laughs) Why? Because it doesn't apply to them. Like, typically, if you throw out a fat joke, the person that's really deeply offended and moved is the person who's fat. Because there was truth that they're resisting, like short people with tall jokes. I don't care, I'm short. Or tall people aren't offended by short jokes. Why? Because it doesn't relate, it doesn't strike a chord, it doesn't have a hint of truth at all. Here's my point. I am convinced that this reaction of offense at the truth of scripture is often evidence that the truth being communicated has struck a deep chord within the person that they are often unwilling to address. You know, the, the word of God is called A double-edged sword. Which means it's intending to have an effect. The Sadducees are greatly offended. Why? Because there was truth, not that they rejected, but it was truth they were resisting. Chris Rock says it well. He says, you can only offend me if you mean something to me. I think that encapsulates the point here. Question. Question. What was greatly disturbing the religious establishment? It wasn't that they disagreed with what Peter and John were saying, it's the fact that they knew what they were saying was the truth. Never once in this entire story are we gonna see the religious establishment deny the resurrection. Never once. Will they come out and deny or, or present some alternative theory. They never deny the fact that Jesus was resurrected. They just didn't want it communicated. They didn't want to hear it. They were through with it. They were over it. You see, they were resisting the truth, which is why they were offended by it. You know, it should also be pointed out what typically happens when a person is deeply offended by the truth. They typically attack the truth speaker. So... With that context established, what happens? They laid hands on them. Put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The scene that Luke paints for us is one of a swift and violent action. The temple guard, acting in the authority of the priests, the Sadducees, They rush into Solomon's portico. Through the crowd of onlookers that had gathered that were listening to Peter and John, they seize them, they arrest them, they lead them off as prisoners. We're told that they laid hands on them. It's actually the phrase, it kind of describes waves that are crashing into a ship. It means literally to throw oneself upon, to lay upon, to rush in. It wasn't that they were like, hey, you need to come with us. They rushed in, they grabbed hold of them, and they led them out. We're told, they laid hands on, no, them. According to verse 14, we will see them to include not only Peter and John, but interesting who else is with them. Who else gets arrested? The very man that had been healed. And I love this. You know, it's one thing to follow Jesus when, like, my legs are now working and I can river dance my way through the temple. Like, that's great. Like, that's cool. I'll follow Jesus. I'll hang out with other followers. This is unbelievable. And then he gets arrested. It's like, wait a second. Like, I'm now incarcerated. I can can walk, and now you just put me in chains. Like, how ridiculous is that? And yet this man, I love it. He had counted the cost. He chose to follow Jesus no matter where it led. Please understand, Jesus might give you legs to walk and might even provide you the strength to stand. But that doesn't mean he also won't lead you into hostile courts. Psalms 23, verse four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's not that we will no longer have to go through the valley of the shadow of death as followers of Jesus. It's the fact that he will lead us and he will comfort us and he will be there with us. Peter and John, this lame man, they enter the temple, it's the ninth hour, it's 3 p.m., it's already evening, they get arrested, they're gonna spend the night in jail. Think for a moment how intimidating a set of circumstances that this ends up being for Peter and John. I mean, all they're doing is preaching. I mean, it's not like they're, they're trying to stir up civil disobedience or stir up some kind of political unrest. It's, it's, not like, it's not like they even went to the temple with the intention of any of this happening, right? I mean, they just went to go pray. A miracle happened. They respond to the miracle. Now they're being arrested, and they're being arrested by the same group of people that had two months earlier done what? Illegally tried and unjustly executed their leader. And now they're in jail, awaiting to stand trial the next day. I can imagine it's intimidating. The anxiety, the stress. But we're told, verse 4, that many of those who heard the word believed, and the number came to be about 5,000. Though the political and religious establishment resisted the message of Jesus Christ and him resurrected, Luke tells us that in response to what? To the miracle of the lame man? No. In response to the preaching of God's word, that many, or literally a large number of those who heard, what? What? Peter, preaching the word, believed. The miracle of the lame man. It it indeed sparked an interest. It drew a crowd, but Luke is clear. It was the preaching of God's word that produced a saving faith. And you see the contrast, don't you? You have a group of men who are greatly disturbed. They're offended and they lash out. They arrest these men, but in contrast, there was another group who heard the word and responded to the word. And as we've seen and noted many times, faith doesn't come by seeing or witnessing miracles. Faith comes by how? By hearing and hearing by how? The word of God. Now Luke, Luke is providing a historical document, a historical narrative. And in order to establish an account of the rapid spread of Christianity, he tells Theophilus, the man in whom he's writing the uh, the, the, the historical account. He says the number of men who believed came to be about 5,000. And there has been a, a bit of debate in regards to this 5,000. Some have said that it's, it's actually the grand total now of the church itself. Thus, Pentecost, there was 3,000. Now an additional 2,000 are saved, thus bringing the total now to being about 5,000. And yet the problem with that particular interpretation is that it has, it has no basis in the text. You see, the, 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 the language that Luke uses here doesn't mean that this was a number of men that was to be added to the previous number of men, but rather was a new group of men who had responded to the message, which means the first sermon's 3,000, and now in response to this sermon, an, there's an additional 5,000 bringing the grand total in just two quick months to 8,000 people rejecting Judaism and following Jesus. It's an incredible thing. And that's just the men. It doesn't take into account women and children. This is an awesome movement. And Luke is making it clear how quickly it's spreading. We're told that it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? In addition to the presence of the group that we had mentioned before, the priests and the Sadducees, now Luke documents the full role of what we would know as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling uh, Jewish body. Uh, They had uh, authority on just about every issue, but they couldn't sentence someone to death. That was simply um, uh, left to the the, the Roman governing authority, And, and we discussed all that with Jesus. They could condemn a person, but they couldn't execute a person. And so this this ruling body, 70 Jewish men plus one, the high priest, we have here. We're told that in addition to the priests, the Sadducees, we have the rulers and the elders. And these were the heads of the uh, religious families, the influential families of Israel, the scribes. They were the impartial interpreters of the law. Basically, you had powerful men and their lawyers present. Luke summarizes the rest of this group as many as were of the family of the high priest, but he does mention a few by name, once again providing a historical account to be read. These would be men of notoriety, of which Theophilus and anyone else reading uh, this particular book would uh, would have recognized, Annas the high priest. According to Josephus, Annas had been high priest from 6 to 15 A.D., but the Romans, because of some unrest in the region, pulled him from power. They re- revoked his, uh, his privilege of being high priest, stripped him of his capacity. And yet, even then, the man was still the one pulling the strings, the strings. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. And after Annas is removed from being high priest, Caiaphas takes his place. But he's nothing more than a figurehead. Annas is the guy running the show, and Caiaphas' family is the one that's sitting in the seat. Now, as a result, it was quite a lucrative proposition for him. Josephus says that his net worth was around $3 U.S. dollars. So extrapolate that out back in the first century. Quite a wealthy man. John, this man John, was uh, Annas' son. Um, who would actually secede uh, Caiaphas. He would become high priest in 37 AD. Alexander, we have no idea who this is. Um, I did a lot of research to try to find out who Alexander is because these things interest me. Um, obviously, in context, he's probably a member, at least, of Annas's family. Uh, the best theory that, that I heard is that he's probably actually not a person, but this is a reference to a title, that this is the chief of the Jews at Alexandria, just a theory. The scene, it's intimidating. Not only have Peter and John, the lame man, been held overnight in jail. Now they're brought before this ruling body, the Sanhedrin, the most powerful, wealthy, influential men in Israel, the same group that had wielded such power to have Jesus crucified. These three men are standing in front of them, I can imagine that they are expecting the same fate. I don't think that that's outside of the realm of possibility. And we're told that the question that's presented by this ruling body is by what power or by what name have you done this? Speaking of this being uh, the healing of this lame man. And this is actually not a bad way to start things. According to Deuteronomy chapter 13, God had been clear that the, the, the leaders of Israel had a responsibility to vet any miracle or miracle worker done in the land. Obviously, Satan has the power to perform miracles as well. We have examples of that in the Old Testament. And thus, in order to vet whether or not the miracle was done in the name of the true God of Israel, and thus the the prophet being a genuine prophet, uh, it had to be vetted. Every miracle, every miracle worker prophet would be vetted by the religious establishment. So asking the question, it's not an unfair or unjust question. A miracle's been done, you guys are in the center of it, and we want to know by what power it has taken place. And Peter's answer will produce here now the third sermon. Verse 8, we're told, Then Peter Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and pause. In Acts 2, we saw how Peter is initially filled with the Holy Spirit. And not only did this filling produce the worship of God through the gift of tongues, but it also enabled Peter to boldly preach his first sermon to those who had gathered to see what was taking place we can also assume that that initial feeling played a a pivotal role in in bringing Peter to this lame man, also enabling him with the gift of faith to assault the man who's not getting up so that his legs would work and the healing would take place. Like, we see the Holy Spirit, this first filling, working in cool ways in the life of Peter. Obviously, as well, the second sermon he taught. But now this is a new scene. This is a new setting. This is something Peter has never really handled before. He's standing before this group of people. It's intimidating. He's nervous. He's thinking that the end result of whatever happens would be death, would be crucifixion. And so he's standing there, and we're told that face to face with the same crew, that we're told he's filled again with the Holy Spirit. And Luke's choice of Greek grammar indicates that it's in this moment that he receives a new, fresh filling. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's literally to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's active. Luke presents filled in a present active tense, indicating that this third interaction with the Holy Spirit, of which we spent quite a bit of time talking about in the beginning of our study in Acts, was not a one-time occasion, but something continuously available. So he's filled there Pentecost. And now he's filled again. And we will note it over and over and over again because the followers of Jesus are constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know, I think the idea here only makes sense when we view the Holy Spirit not as a power or some kind of divine source that we tap into. But I think this kind of uh, modus operandus, it only makes sense when we view the Holy Spirit as being a person that we interact with. Like, don't miss the obvious. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, a person, the third person of the Trinity. Now, to explain how this works, I'm going to kind of paint you an illustration or analogy to try to help you understand how the Holy Spirit being a person and we interact with this person, how this explains our interactions, I'm going to use my relationship with Jessica, my wife, because I believe that she has a very similar threefold ministry that the Holy Spirit does. Roll with me for a moment. Even before I married Jessica, simply being with her encouraged me to be the person God had called me to be. Like, her very presence... Motivated me to be a better man. And I think, fellas, we can all understand that our women motivate us to be a better man. So I didn't have to marry Jessica for her to have that role in my life. Just hanging out with her, being with her, it encouraged me to get my act together because I kind of like to marry her, right? Then upon marriage, I became one with Jessica. And because of the new intimacy of our covenant relationship, her role in my life went beyond just encouraging me. Now she naturally possessed a greater ability to help me in the process of becoming more of the man that God wanted me to be. So before our first relationship or interaction, she was encouraging me. We would call it that para ministry, that the Holy Spirit's with us. And then secondly, that in ministry, that that indwelling ministry. Because of our covenant relationship, she now isn't just encouraging me. She's helping me. She's aiding me because of the relationship that we have now, this new intimate relationship. But it's a reality that there are times when I need a greater ministry from my wife than just those two things. There are times when I need more than simple encouragement. There are times that I I need more than just her help. There are times in weakness, times of trial, times when I'm down and out or intimidated that I now need to draw upon my wife for strength, for power to be the person that God has called me to be. And so in a similar, uh, the para ministry, the Spirit's with us, convicting us, leading us to Christ, encouraging us. And then the second one, the Holy Spirit comes in, and because of the intimacy of that relationship, because we've been regenerated, the Spirit's inside of me, now He's practically helping me. But then there are times when just encouragement and aid, that I need more than that. Like, I need to draw upon that person for strength. Why? Because I can't do it. You see, this is is what's happening here. Peter's in an intimidating situation. The Spirit's with him. The Spirit's in him. But right now, he needs more from the Holy Spirit. He needs to draw upon the Spirit for the words to say, for the boldness to speak. You see, all three interactions are continual. Why? Because they're personal. Spirit-filled. Spirit-filled is not a title describing The relationship I have with the Holy Spirit. But spirit filled, it's an interaction that manifests in my life from the relationship I have with the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody was asked why he needed to be filled continuously with the Holy Spirit. And his response I love it. He looked at the lady and he said, Because I leak. You see, in the moment, what Moody is saying is he's saying that though the Spirit is with me and because I'm one with the Spirit of God, there are still times where I need to draw upon a greater manifestation of that relationship for strength, for power, for inspiration. So the rulers, verse 8, Peter continues his sermon. He says, rulers of the, of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day are judged... For a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Boom, shakalaka. I mean, like, he's in the moment, and he's looking around, and it's intimidating, He takes a breath, says a prayer. He's filled with the Spirit. And then he rolls up his sleeves and he gets down to business. Let me paraphrase Peter's answer for you. You want to know, you want to know by what power or by what name this man has been healed? Well, I'll answer you. This man, and he's standing there, right? This man has been made well. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Yes, this Jesus. Yeah, the guy. You know him. Yeah, you crucified him. And you rejected him. But God accepted him and raised him from the dead. And because this Jesus is still alive, though you try to kill him, he's still breathing. He's actively at work in the lives of men. And that's the reason that this man's standing here whole. Because Jesus is alive and Jesus is the one that did it. Let's be honest. It's not much of a seeker service that we have here, is it? It really isn't. Referencing back to a study earlier, Peter was not operating as a dealer, hoping to make everyone feel good at the low-rise church. Peter was not a pimp enabling the attendees of the brothel church to avoid personal responsibility. Nor was he a ringmaster, trying to appeal his message, craft his message for everyone to feel good and eat cotton candy. Rather, Peter, he looks at this, these men and he speaks the truth. <laughs> he speaks the truth to an audience who's already been offended by the truth he's been saying, which means he's offended them once, and does he change his message because they were offended? No, he doesn't. He doesn't at all. You know, there's a side point. You know, the essence of the healing came in the power, in the name of Jesus. And that's kind of like asking the same question twice. The name and the power, it was all tied together. We discussed that last week. But you know, isn't it fascinating that there really is power in the name of Jesus whether you're an atheist, a Christian, a Buddhist, a hedonist, a pagan, whatever. I'll Give you a practical example. Did you realize that it's only in Jesus' name that people speak in vain? Like, have you ever noticed that when you hit your, your thumb with a hammer, that the inclination is to yell out, Jesus Christ, and not Buddha? That hurt! Like, that, that, that no one takes the name of Muhammad in vain or Confucius. Son of a Confucius. <laughs> like, we only, we only take the name. Whether you're a Christian or not, isn't it fascinating that it's the name of Jesus that's, that's used in vain? And why? Because there's power in the name. It doesn't matter what perspective or what angle you're using the name. There's still power. The reason that we cry out, Jesus, even if we reject his existence or Godhead, because there's uh, somehow like this release because we're exerting power. And why is the name of Jesus so powerful, whereas Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad isn't? It's because there's no power in the name of someone who's dead. See, there's power and authority in the name of Jesus for only one reason. He's still alive and is very much powerful. And Peter continues, he says, This, speaking of Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. You know, Peter will actually reference this concept over and over and over again. Like, all throughout his sermons, even you get to his writings, his two epistles. This is like a verse that just, for whatever reason, it clicked for Peter. And he uses a passage here, Scripture, to validate his position before a group of theologians. He quotes a messianic passage they would have all been familiar with, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, which states that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and then this was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Peter is telling them that God knew all along that you builders would reject the most important stone of all, the stone that God would exalt to be used as the chief cornerstone. He's basically saying, you guys threw away the very key. Like you entirely missed the mark. You've been building this great temple, this great religion, and there was one stone that was the key to all understanding. And because you didn't understand how it fit, you threw it aside. But it's that stone that was the chief cornerstone or the key upon which everything else rested. And then he says, verse 12 Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's unpack this for a second. Nor is there salvation in any other. Salvation, the Greek word, it means deliverance. In a biblical sense, we know that salvation speaks of deliverance from the consequences of sin, that being death, to be saved from our sin, and death as the consequence of our sin. Nor is there salvation or deliverance from sin in any other, in any other, it speaks contextually of salvation being found in any other stone but the stone they had just rejected, the chief cornerstone of which we know is whom? Jesus. So he's saying, there's no, you rejected Jesus, and there's no other way that you can be saved from sin. You morons. I threw that in. And then he says, there is no other name by which we must be saved. No other name. It's in the emphatic tense, meaning in his name, in his name alone. Peter is telling these religious leaders that they not only rejected their Savior, but unless they were willing to change their position on Jesus, they could never be saved. You know, we live in a society that refuses to make absolute judgments when it comes to a person's religious beliefs, propping up instead the sincerity of the believer as the only validating prerequisite because truth by definition excludes honest debate upon moral truth has been supplanted by the universal acceptance of an individual's perspective. Therefore, it is simply a reality that our culture, our society, takes grave offense to the perceived narrowness and exclusivity found in this statement that salvation can only be found in Jesus. Our culture doesn't like that. Now, now, please understand, believing that salvation can be found in Jesus, that's not the concept that people are, are deeply offended by. What's abrasive is the position that asserts that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And every other religious system or worldview subsequently destines their followers to hell, regardless of sincerity, and yet, in making the accusation that Christians are somehow narrow in our beliefs and intolerant of others, our culture tragically overlooks a few obvious points. First, you know, Christians—Christians Christians aren't the ones making the claim of exclusivity. You're being exclusive. That's not fair. I'm not being exclusive at all. Peter's being exclusive. No, he's not. You see, Peter isn't introducing some new revolutionary concept to Scripture. Who's being exclusive? That's Jesus. Jesus is the one being exclusive. He was the one that said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to accuse me of, of being exclusive? Or narrow? Dude, it's Jesus. Your, your issue's not with me. It's with Jesus. Ironically, though, Christians seem to take the heat on the issue of exclusivity. You know, the reality is that every other religion is just as exclusive. Like we get the bum rap, but everybody's exclusive. Ravi Zacharias wrote, all religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is the uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not and accordingly of defining life's purpose. He summarizes by saying, every religion at its core is exclusive. Everybody's exclusive. As a matter of fact, there's a very, very small minority of people in this world that are, quote-unquote, inclusive. Secondly, tolerance tolerance doesn't equate to the acceptance of every position as being right. We've gotten this all messed up. I'm glad we live in a very tolerant world. (laughs) I'm very glad. Like I'm glad that the United States is tolerant, that we pride ourselves on being tolerant. So everyone has the freedom to worship God however they so choose, however they want without fear of persecution. I'm glad I can worship God without being burned at the stake or beheaded and have it broadcast on the internet. And to make it better, I believe that freedom, this, this, this tolerance that comes with allowing people to believe what they want, it's most Christian. Like, if you want to see what intolerance really looks like, be one of those kids in that schoolroom in Nigeria this past week. F- find yourself living as a Christian in a Muslim-controlled country. If you want to see intolerance, it's not America. Try living in Egypt as, as a Coptic Christian or Iran or Saudi Arabia or Syria. If you want to see intolerance. You see, in reading through Peter's dialogue with these religious leaders, how can he really say he's being intolerant? He's just Declaring a position. It's been said we have the right to believe whatever we want, but that doesn't mean that everything we believe is right. You see, the core problem with our society is that tolerance is no longer seen as simply providing a person the freedom to believe what they want to believe. Today, tolerance is viewed as the acceptance of every position as being equal. Once again, I reference Ravi Zacharias, who recently discussed a shift in our culture that takes tolerance beyond even this position. He says these days, it's not just that the line between right and wrong has been made unclear. Today, Christians are being asked by our culture to erase the lines and move the fences. And if that were not enough, we are being asked to join in the celebration cry by those who have thrown off the restraints that religion has imposed on them. It is not just that they ask, we accept a behavior, but now they demand that we celebrate it as well. Just because we're tolerant doesn't mean we believe that everyone's belief is, is correct. And when did that become an indicator of intolerance? Thirdly, it seems arrogant to me to refer to only one way for salvation as being narrow. Our society will do that. They'll say that, that message of exclusivity is narrow. It's intolerant and it's narrow think for a moment, if you were to apply the same reaction to another topic, aside from that being of sin and hell, because I think if you do, it becomes obvious how intellectually arrogant and even ungrateful that particular position is. Were people really offended that scientists only found one vaccine for polio? I cannot believe the narrowness of this. How intolerant that there's only one vaccine for polio? Like, like were people really been out of shape when we found that one cure for malaria? Or measles, or tetanus, or typhoid, yellow fever, chicken pox, or smallpox? No. Like, people were incredibly grateful that there was finally provided a way they could be saved from what before had been a certain death sentence. Seriously. Just because there's one way to be saved doesn't mean that that's narrow. Like how many cures do you really need for the same disease? Like if we came out today and said, yes, we have a cure for cancer. Nah, I'm going to come up with my own way. I'm really offended that you're telling me that that's the only way that I can be cured of cancer. I think that there might be another way. As a matter of fact, I think always leads to the same conclusion. The same place. That's silliness. You know, I think, if I'm going to be honest here, which I would hope so because I'm pastoring and preaching, I'm not lying to you, put it that way. To be frank, I think it's shocking that verse 12 even exists at all. Like, it's unreal to me that Peter brings up the topic of salvation to these men who were directly responsible for the death of his best friend, Jesus. I mean, mean, let's take a step back and think through this for a moment. Peter has just hammered them with the truth. You killed Jesus. You crucified him. God raised him up. The stone that's the chief cornerstone, you cast aside. To me, I would have been cool With Peter's sermon ending with verse 11, you rejected Jesus, now you're screwed. I'm done. See, of all the people that didn't deserve a second chance would have been this group. Like this group would have topped the list. And yet Peter not only boldly presents the gospel, but he provides the remedy for their sin. You rejected the stone. You rejected Jesus. But there is salvation in him, even for you. To me, the gravity of this, it sinks in in a radical way. Salvation through Jesus alone, it's not that narrow to me. Honestly, it's more remarkable that there is a way at all to be saved. What's appropriate is, yeah, you sinner, Have fun. You're going to get what you deserve. But to me, the fact that there is the good news, that even after we've all rejected Jesus, that Jesus still provides us a way. My final point is that, okay, salvation. Let's, let's say that it might be narrow and that it only comes through Jesus. You know, it's a grave mistake to see salvation in Jesus as then being narrow in its accessibility. Salvation, you know, salvation by works, it limits the race, and that's all religion, but it limits the race to only the smartest, the most righteous, disciplined, and devoted, who still, by the way, fall very short in the end. But salvation by faith in Jesus, it opens the halls of heaven to every single one of us. It's accessible To everyone. Paul would say in Ephesians 3, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. How? Through faith in him. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, even these men, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. And no doubt, this concept always weighed on Peter's mind. I wonder why. (laughs) Because he had denied Jesus too. Like Peter, the most radical concept for Peter is that there was still hope for him. Even after he denied Jesus on three occasions, nor is there salvation in any other. Thank goodness there is salvation in Jesus. Second Peter, he says, "The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but Jesus is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, I'd love to introduce you to him. We won't make you stand or do anything weird. We would just ask that you 'd come up after the service." And whether it's me or one of the elders, we'd love to pray for you. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus. So if you'd join me, Father.